This is Dr. Russell Blaylock, and you're listening to the Blaylock Health Channel. What I want to discuss today is our changing understanding of depression and how best to treat it. We're seeing that a lot of diseases, uh, as we accumulate more and more evidence in our research laboratories and our studies, uh, we're changing uh, our perceptions of the causation of those diseases and how to treat it. And depression is one of those conditions. We've assumed for a long period of time that we understood some of the basics of uh, this disorder, but now we're finding out we were wrong. Now, most of us are pretty much familiar with depression. We've had some sort of depression in our life, and most of the time depression has an explanation. Something bad happens and financial things, and you, and you become depressed, but uh, you tend to get over that. Uh, the, the difference in major depression is that all of these symptoms and signs are occurring but you don't know why. There's, there doesn't seem to be an explanation for it. And we experience things like uh, a sensation of this engulfing darkness or gloominess. Uh, we feel uh, there's a hopelessness, a feeling that life is filled with despair. and uh, uh, We have a loss of joy and enthusiasm for life. And these symptoms are accompanied by other symptoms that, are, that are, don't seem to be mental, such things as easy exhaustion. Uh, even after minor exertion, we become very tired, uh, don't feel like doing anything. We uh, can uh, suffer from insomnia, uh, difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, we tend to shun social contact. We don't want to deal with people. We become internal. Now, depression is undergoing a change based on some observations that inflammation seems to have some sort of connection to depression. I'm going to list some things that uh, led us to this conclusion. One was the incidence of coronary heart attacks. Depression is three times higher in people who have uh, cardiovascular disease. And we know up to 50% of patients who die of a heart attack are depressed prior to having a heart attack. And this is usually the first heart attack for which there's no symptoms or anything wrong. Both cardiovascular disease patients and depression are associated with high levels of pro-inflammatory immune cytokines, that is chemicals that have to do with inflammation. So both of these disorders, heart disease, strokes, and depression are associated with these inflammatory chemicals being elevated. And there's other things that have to do with uh, cardiovascular disease that makes this connection as well. We know that depression is strongly linked with heart attack risk and mortality from heart attacks. So people that are severely depressed prior to their heart attack, are more likely to die from it. Uh, there's a higher incidence of recurrent heart attacks in people that are depressed, and these recurrences are more likely to occur soon after the first heart attack than people that are less uh, depressed. Uh, depression, when it's associated with dementia, uh, is associated with a more rapid uh, course of the dementia, and the disease is more severe. So dementia uh, is severely affected by this depression. Uh, depression is commonly associated with autoimmune diseases, uh, such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or inflammatory bowel diseases. And we know that depression can worsen these diseases so that you may be in remission and you get severely depressed and the disease comes back in its full uh, presentation. And uh, it can activate bouts uh, of the symptoms of your autoimmune disease. 
And we know that during pregnancy, the, a woman's immune system is suppressed, and that's so her immune system won't reject the baby. After birth, the, the mother's immune system rebounds and comes back to a full uh, activity. In some women, it overshoots so that it's overreactive immune system. Uh, and if that occurs, uh, about 10 to 15% of women will experience postpartum depression which in some cases is quite severe and can lead to suicide or even homicide. So this connection between inflammation and depression, there's more and more evidence uh, that's coming forth. Now, interestingly, the earlier studies in research seem to indicate that, in fact, depression was associated with immune suppression. When they measured the ability of immune cells like lymphocytes or natural killer cells to react, they seemed to be depressed in in these patients that are, are having major depression. But our newer studies, now that we know how to look closer at the immune system, we see, in fact, uh, the immune system is overreactive, uh, and we have this triggering of these inflammatory reactions with an outpouring of large concentrations of pro-inflammatory chemicals we call cytokines, chemokines, and interferons. Now, this seems somewhat contradictory with the immune system's uh, suppressed in terms of the activity of the immune cells, how can you be inflamed? Well, that's uh, very common, and it's because part of the immune system, the part that's effective fighter against cancer or against uh, microorganisms, is defective, but the immune system itself is pouring out a lot of these inflammatory chemicals in response. We see in depressed patients when they measure the inflammatory markers, things that indicate inflammation. We see high levels, for instance, of uh, uh, neoterin, which uh, is a marker for macrophage activation, in other words, inflammatory activation. We see elevated C-reactive protein in patients that are depressed, and it seems to be a correlation between the degree of elevation of these inflammatory markers and the severity of the depression. For instance, depressed people, we see elevation of the major pro-inflammatory cytokines like uh, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, uh, and tumor necrosis factor alpha, and interferon gamma. Another inflammatory chemical called PGE2 is also increased in people with depression, and it correlates with the severity of the depression. Uh, PGE2 is one of the eicosanoids, which uh, is formed in cells. Uh, this is the chemical that's blocked when you take a drug that's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And studies have shown that COX-2 inhibitors and, and these inhibitors of this uh, PGE2 can act like antidepressants by reducing the inflammation. And bouts of depression can increase the permeability uh, of the brain to chemicals in the blood so that more of these inflammatory cytokines can enter the brain. Now, the big question is, and I'm sure this, this has occurred to you at this point, what comes first, the depression are the inflammation. In other words, the, the old chicken and the egg uh, dilemma. Well, there's considerable evidence that the inflammation comes first. For instance, inflammatory changes, as we said, in the cardiovascular patient often precedes the heart attack or the stroke. And consequently, the depression precedes the uh, problem with cardiovascular disease. And it also precedes the onset of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease before any symptoms occur. The most powerful evidence we have is that uh, doctors sometimes treat certain diseases like cancer or hepatitis C 
by injecting these inflammatory chemicals, these cytokines and interferons into patients. And what they find is that a significant number of these people become severely depressed when you inject these cytokines or interferons. Uh, they can develop bipolar disorder and mania. And when you stop these inflammatory chemicals, the depression goes away. The obsessive compulsive disorder goes away. So there's very strong evidence there that it's actually causing the depression. And we know experimentally stimulating the immune system by vaccination process produces depression. And uh, intense uh, stimulation of the immune system with vaccination can produce rather severe degrees of depression. And as we said, many autoimmune diseases are associated uh, with depression, and it tends to occur prior to the onset of the symptoms of the autoimmune disease. A lot of people tell me, they say, well, you know, if I had an autoimmune disease, I'd be depressed. But it's occurring before the autoimmune disease symptoms uh, even appear. Another really strong piece of evidence comes from observations of uh, viral infections. Uh, we know, for instance, when you get the flu, you develop this set of symptoms. Uh, you become sad, socially withdrawn, uh, can suffer from insomnia, sleeplessness, uh, fatigue, and some people even have suicidal or homicidal thoughts where they become severely depressed when they're infected, and it can outlast the other symptoms of the infection itself. Now, it was previously thought that the virus itself was causing this, but now we've discovered that, in fact, it's, the, it's your body's reaction to the virus by producing all these inflammatory chemicals. It's producing this depressive uh, behavior. And another interesting piece of the puzzle and evidence comes from the fact that uh, it's been recently discovered that many of the antidepressant medications are actually acting as anti-inflammatories. For instance, uh, empyramine, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, even the SSRI medications can produce uh, an anti-inflammatory effect. One of the ways they treat severe depression is electroshock therapy, in which they put electrodes on the scalp and send a jolt of electricity through the frontal lobes of the brain. We never really understood why electroshock therapy would produce improvements in depression, but recently they found that when you do this, this jolt of electricity, the level of inflammatory chemicals in the brain and the blood decrease, particularly tumor necrosis factor alpha inflammatory chemical. So it appears that there's really good evidence mounting here. And one more piece of evidence is the connection between physical exercise and depression. Most people know people who exercise regularly, rather vigorously, rarely get depressed. And that if you are depressed, if you do physical exercise, depression improves. And what they've discovered is that it reduces inflammation in the body when you exercise, and it makes the brain secrete an anti-inflammatory growth factor called brain-derived growth factor. So we're getting a closer and closer to the explanation about why a lot of divergent things are improving depression. Another observation in depression is that people who are depressed have chronically elevated cortisol levels and that this is due to overstimulation of the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Now, chronically elevated uh, corticosteroids are known to produce worsening of inflammation. Normally, we associate corticosteroids with reducing inflammation, but you can get the opposite effect when they're chronically elevated. 
Now, that's the first part of the puzzle is the inflammatory immune part of this puzzle, but it doesn't answer the primary question. How does this make the brain uh, depressed? What is it doing actually that depresses the person? What is the uh, neurological mechanism? Well, that leads us to the second part, excitotoxicity. That is the overstimulation of glutamate-type receptors in the brain. Now, this link between uh, the immune inflammation and excitotoxicity, I coined the term uh, in the medical literature, immunoexcitotoxicity, to explain this link. Now, basically, uh, what happens is when the immune system is activated, it's turning on these glutamate receptors very intensely, and that produces abnormal function of certain areas of the brain, and over time can destroy certain areas of the brain. That's why we call it excitotoxicity, because glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Now, uh, importance in depression is that these receptors control virtually all the other neurotransmitters as well, or at least has interaction with the other neurotransmitters. For instance, glutamate receptors are found on the nerve cells, brain cells, that normally were thought to be operated by serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. These were the neurotransmitters that were previously thought to be important in depression. And that's why all of our drugs are designed around ways to elevate these neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. Now, in the brain, the source of the glutamate is the brain's main immune cell, which is called the microglia. These cells are scattered throughout the brain, and uh, normally they're in a resting state or a semi-resting state but they're very easily activated. When they're activated, they release large amounts of glutamate into the brain and inflammatory chemicals. And this disrupts not only the glutamate neurotransmission, but also the brain communication by these other neurotransmitters as well. Now, recent studies have shown that the microglia are activated in a number of psychiatric disorders. And this can include depression, anxiety disorder, suicides, bipolar disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Uh, the link with such disorders as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, cardiovascular disease, and neurodegenerative disease is that all of these diseases also activate microglia in the brain uh, in the areas that we see activated in depression. And what we've discovered is that any disturbance of the body, for instance, um, major or minor surgery, uh, trauma to the body, a broken arm, uh, infections, vaccinations, uh, even stress can rapidly activate these microglia cells in the brain and can res uh, result in this triggering of this immunoexcitotoxicity reaction. Now, once these microglia are activated, they release large amounts of the glutamate uh, and the inflammatory chemicals, and it stimulates the receptors on the neurons of the areas in the brain that's concerned with depression, anxiety, and obsessive thoughts. And these are mainly the hippocampus and the amygdala, which is considered the limbic areas, and the anterior cingulate cortex. Now, a recent study in which patients who had committed suicide, they took their brains and they examined them, and they were looking to see, is there activation of the microglia, and what chemicals are these microglia uh, uh, releasing uh, in these depressed patients? And so they compared them to brains from people who died from other causes and had no history of depression. None of the people that were involved in this study had any other neurological disorder. So this was a 
pretty pure study between depressed patients and the normals. And what they found uh, was that there was selective microglial activation in the areas of the brain known to be affected by depression, as I listed previously. This microglial activation occurred only in those with depression and not in the control patient. Uh, they also found that the level of a chemical called quinolinic acid was elevated in these microglia. Now, quinolinic acid activates certain types of glutamate receptors, just like glutamate does. The type of receptor it activates is called the NMDA receptor. I'll come back to quin in just a minute because this is very important. We call quinolinic acid quin for short. A number of studies have found that overactive glutamate receptors in the brain of people with depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and anxiety, mainly in those areas of the brain I told you about before. Even more powerful evidence comes from the observation that when patients with severe unresponsive major depression were given a single dose of a drug called ketamine, these patients were cured of their depression and the benefits lasted as long as a month after the drug had been stopped. So here are patients that are highly resistant to treatment of depression. Uh, in other words, they were treatment failures. They gave them this single dose of ketamine, and the depression went away for as long as a month, even after they had stopped the ketamine. Now, the ketamine is known to have two main effects on the brain. One, it blocks NMDA glutamate-type receptors. And two, it calms down the microglia. That is, it turns the activated microglia off, puts them back in a a sleeping mode. It's now known that other drugs that suppress glutamate receptors also improve depression. There's several uh, unexplained phenomenon we see with depression that the old theory couldn't explain, and it remained a, a mystery until we realized that we were going down the wrong road. Uh, the old theory, that is the serotonin deficiency or deficiency of norepinephrine dopamine, uh, couldn't explain why, when you gave this drug or these drugs to, to a depressed patient, why did it take two or three weeks before you saw any improvement? Uh, we knew that the changes in the neurotransmitter occurred immediately. So if it was due to deficiency in these neurotransmitters like serotonin or norepinephrine, the results should have been immediate. They should have gotten better right away, but they didn't. There was this delay. And so that was unexplained. Now, what we do know is that these antidepressants have an anti-inflammatory effect and that over this three-week period, a two-week period of reducing that inflammation, then you can have a correction of the damage and that explains the delay effect. The second mystery is it's known that people with major depression often complain of memory loss and studies using special scans have shown that the hippocampus of the brain, that is the part that has to do with recent memory, tends to shrink after months of major depression in a large percentage of people. And newer studies have shown even within a few weeks of depression, uh, they begin to have impaired memory. Now, the old theory couldn't explain this. We didn't know why deficiency in serotonin would cause that. Now, interestingly, aminoexcitatory toxicity destroys the very same neurons in the very same places that have to do with recent memory and that we're seeing this brain shrinkage. And this results in the memory loss. So what you've learned so far is that long before depression becomes a problem, either the brain alone or the whole body's inflamed. And with time, this activates more and more microglia in certain areas of the brain. 
and that these activated microglia are pouring out glutamate in high concentrations. This disrupts the special brain circuits concerned with depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and even suicide risk. And that over time, this immunoexcitotoxicity shrinks part of the brain that has to do with recent memory. And this can lead to a loss of memory function. Now, here's where we come back to the quinolinic acid. It's known that anytime you have any inflammation in your body and or your brain, it inhibits a special enzyme called indolamine-2,3-dioxygenase, which we call IDO for short. Now, what this enzyme does, it has to do with metabolism of tryptophan, whether it goes to form serotonin or whether it's shifted off to form quinolinic acid. Now, normally, this enzyme is quiet so that most of the uh, metabolism goes to forming serotonin for the brain. But when you're inflamed, it shifts it toward making a quinolinic acid. And again, quinolinic acid activates NMDA glutamate receptors. And just like glutamate does, this produces the same disrupted brain circuits and shrinkage of the memory areas of the brain that causes depression and what we see pathologically with depression. So this combination of excess glutamate and quinolinic acid, both of which are coming from the microglia, appears to be central to depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and suicide risk. This again links depression and inflammation, mainly by inflammation triggering this excitotoxicity. Now, what can we do about this chain of events? Most important is reducing the inflammation, and this means looking for the source of the inflammation. It can be from a number of events. For instance, infected gums, chronically infected gums, periodontal disease, produces inflammation in the body and produces a high quinolinic acid, produces microglial activation. Dysbiosis, having abnormal probiotics in the gut or pathogenic organism in the gut, upsets the immune system, can lead to leaky gut. This activates uh, the inflammatory cells in the body and activates the microglia in the brain. Autoimmune disorders, as we said, chronic infections like viral infections, bacterial infections, untreated fungal infections like yeast infections. Uh, can produce this. Exposure to certain pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides, which are very common. Uh, Roundup, for instance, uh, can produce uh, this uh, chronic inflammatory state. Exposure to toxic metals like aluminum, mercury, cadmium, and lead. Uh, all of these produce brain inflammation, uh, particularly aluminum and mercury, which are found in vaccines. Uh, the mercury can produce chronic microglial activation as can aluminum. Uh, having high levels of free iron in your blood. You should have your blood tested for iron. High levels of iron can produce chronic inflammation. Eating a diet high in oxidized polyunsaturated oils, for instance, the omega-6 oil, uh, like safflower oil, sunflower oil, peanut oil, corn oil, uh, even canola oil, using it in salad dressings, particularly cooking with it, which rapidly oxidizes these oils, and these oxidized oils produce brain inflammation. Uh, normally, Americans are consuming about 50 times more of these type of oils than they should be. A low intake of omega-3 oils increases brain inflammation. Low magnesium level is very common with brain inflammation and chronic inflammatory diseases like autoimmune diseases. 
uh, low intake of vegetables and particularly berries. Berries are very good for reducing inflammation. And a high sugar intake increases inflammation. Now, the diet is most important. You concentrate on certain things like eliminating red meat. Red meats have both high glutamate levels and they have high levels of iron. It's readily absorbable. Avoid high glycemic carbs, which can produce uh, a reactive hypoglycemia, and that produces an elevation of brain glutamate and activation of microglia. Eliminate excess sugars, artificial sweeteners like Splenda, aspartame. If you're gluten sensitive, uh, you should eliminate gluten uh, from your diet, and you need to have uh, testing for gluten sensitivity. And it'd be a good idea to check for food intolerance as well, because there are many hidden food intolerances that can produce a state of chronic inflammation. And most important is avoiding uh, dietary excitotoxins like MSG, hydrolyzed protein extract, isolated proteins, soy protein products, soy protein isolates, carrageenan, natural flavoring, allized yeast, broth, stock. These are all disguised names of glutamate-containing uh, additives. Avoid artificial sweeteners, particularly aspartame, because aspartic acid is an excitotoxin. Avoid xylitol, which can produce chronic brain inflammation and in, in taken in large amounts. Mushrooms have a lot of glutamate and can produce brain inflammation. Uh, pureed tomatoes or sauces release a lot of glutamate. Meat juices are high in glutamate. And uh, as we said, eating red meats in excess, red meats uh, can raise blood glutamate levels uh, quite significantly. Now, there's a number of supplements that have an effect on depression uh, that have been shown to also reduce microglial activation in the brain and reduce the glutamate receptor overactivity. For instance, St. John's wort, uh, lithium, curcumin, quercetin, uh, luteolin, uh, apigenin, resveratrol, Norinigan, which is found in uh, grapefruit and orange juices. Hesperidin, which is found in orange juice. Baucaline, EGCG, which is from uh, white and green tea extract. Camphorol, which can be found in a uh, number of uh, vegetables and fruits. And it's found in uh, ginkgo biloba. N-acetyl-L-cysteine reduces inflammation quite effectively. Pyruvate uh, not only reduces inflammation, repairs the gut uh, in cases of leaky gut syndrome and directly downregulates the uh, glutamate receptors and reduces uh, microglial activation in the brain. Vitamin D3 reduces inflammation. Ferulic acid, which is found in uh, a number of fruits, and all of these things that I've just listed are found as uh, separate supplements. You can find a high concentration pure extracts. Grapeseed extract reduces the inflammatory cytokines. Hawthorne does. Jacoba extract. Magnesium produces an anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, vitamin C, natural vitamin E, and tocotrienol, a uh, form of E. The B vitamins uh, reduce excitotoxicity. Folate, methylcobalamin reduce excitotoxicity. Zinc has been found to be a natural antioxidant and a natural anti-inflammatory. Uh, many older people are severely or moderately zinc deficient. Melatonin reduces brain inflammation and inflammation in the body and reduces excitotoxicity. Regular exercise is important. As we said, it reduces brain inflammation. Uh, adequate sleep is very important. 
And we shouldn't forget about prayer and religious worship. Uh, it gives us a sense of calm and reduces that inflammation. And uh, it's a good thing to always thank your creator for all that he gives you. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this week's podcast. And if you'd like to hear uh, the previous episodes of the Blaylock Health Channel podcast, go to our website at www.blaylockhealthchannel.com. Thank you for listening. The information contained within these programs is not intended to replace or contradict that of your physician. This information is for educational purposes only. 